0: To the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, January 14th, I'm your reader, Mary Naff. Before we get started on the front page stories, we'll take a brief look at the weather. Today we are expecting a high of 40 and a low of 30, uh, with winds south 10 to 20 miles an hour, early fog and partly cloudy. Tomorrow will be mostly cloudy with a wind from the southeast at 15 to 25 miles an hour, high of 44 and a low of 38. And then on Monday, rain is very likely. Every forecast I see indicates we will be getting some rain, perhaps a fair amount of rain. On Monday, uh, Sunday, excuse me, winds from the south 15 to 25 miles an hour. The high will be 49 and a low of 38. 32. How does that compare with our normals? Normally our high would be around 28 and our low around 11. In 1928 we had a high of 55 and in 2009 there was a record low of minus 22 degrees. We will have nine hours and 26 minutes of daylight today. The weather story concerns tornadoes, and it's brought to us from meteorologist Corey Thompson, who writes, Numerous tornadoes hit the southern United States this week, causing significant damage and unfortunately several fatalities. January is not known for a widespread risk of severe weather, but it can happen. Where it did happen this week is the climatologically favored area of the country that sees tornado activity this time of year. Far from far east Texas through parts of Louisiana and Arkansas, stretching into much of Mississippi and Alabama and southwest parts of Georgia, the south has the highest average risk for a tornado in January. In Iowa, we don't see the same level of risk for a tornado until the last week of March or into early April. Our overall risk peaks in the last week of May into early June. Moving to the front page, the lead story is from Trish Mahaffey, and it is titled Prosecutor Says Son, Not Intruder, Killed Family, Dateline Cedar Rapids. When police officers responded in summer 2021 to a 911 call about an intruder breaking into a house, what they found there was not what they expected, a prosecutor said Friday in opening the murder case against Alexander Jackson. When officers arrived about 8.31 a.m. on June 15th at 4414 Oak Leaf Court Northeast in Cedar Rapids, they didn't find any forced entry or signs of a struggle, and things seemed to be in place, said Assistant Lynn County Attorney Jordan Shire. When three officers entered the back basement door, they saw Jan Jackson, 61, on the floor near a sofa with blood on his mouth and body. They realized he was dead. His son, Alexander Jackson, 20 at the time, who had made the 911 call, was down the hallway and had a shotgun injury to his foot, Shire said. He told a dispatcher the intruder shot him and eventually said his mother, sister, and father were in the house. Shire said the story had inconsistencies from the start. The dispatcher asked him more than once to describe the intruder who had shot him. Alex could describe him only as a black man wearing black clothing and green shoes. The officers not only found Jan dead, but also his wife, Melissa, aged 68, and their daughter, Sabrina, aged 19, in separate bedrooms with gunshot injuries. Evidence Shire said would show the quote, only person responsible quote, for the three fatal shootings is Alexander Jackson. He shot them multiple times the prosecutor said some at close range with a 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle found in the house. Jackson is on trial in Lynn County District Court on three counts of first-degree murder. Jury selection started Tuesday and a jury was selected late Thursday. The trial is expected to last nine days. Shire said there is no evidence showing anyone else besides the family was in the house that early morning. Surveillance video from doorbell cameras at the front and back of the house don't show any phantom intruder, he said. Police did find numerous shell casings in the house from the unique Browning rifle that can fire 11 bullets without having to reload, Shire said. Jackson told police he and his dad were cleaning it the night before. Sister Sabrina Jackson was shot in the chest her arm, and her face. The bullet went right into one of her eyes. It was at close range. Jan Jackson, the father, was shot five times in the head, neck, and stomach. Melissa Jackson, the mother, was shot twice in the head at close range. "'Alexander Jackson said he didn't hear anything because he was sleeping outside on the sun porch with the dog,' Shire said. "'He said he struggled with the intruder, but the only fingerprints and palm prints on the gun were his,' Shire said. "'They were clear prints without smudges, which one might expect in a struggle.' Lindsay Garner, one of Jackson's attorneys, said in her opening statement that the defendant was in shock, having just seen his father in a pool of blood and having been shot in the foot himself. He was heavily medicated with fentanyl when police investigators started interrogating him at the hospital, she told jurors. Officers wasted no time making him the suspect, but Jackson never wavered in telling them someone broke into the home and that he didn't harm his family, Garner said. He and his family were close and enjoyed spending time together, she said said. They watched movies together. That's what they were doing the night before, having dinner and watching movies. Garner said Jackson was close to his dad. They played video games and went to the shooting range. They cleaned the rifle the night before because they were going to the range the next day. In the hospital, police read Jackson his Miranda rights and questioned him for the next six hours, Garner said. Jackson told them he was sleeping on the porch, heard multiple gunshots, and went downstairs. He saw a man near his father, who was on the floor, and they struggled over the rifle. The intruder shot Alexander Jackson in the foot, his lawyer said. Jackson was able to get hold of the gun, and the intruder ran out the back door, Garner said. Jackson then crawled to his bedroom to get a tourniquet for his foot and called 911. Garner told jurors police didn't do their job and didn't look for any other suspect. They didn't find blood on Jackson except his own, nor was their blood found on the gun or on the muzzle. Police didn't test for DNA on shell casing, she said. An officer and a police dog didn't search the entire house, and the surveillance cameras didn't show the entire yard. Garner said the slayings were a tragedy, but told jurors they shouldn't compound it by convicting the wrong person. Neighbors of the Jackson family testified they were acquainted with the family, but were least familiar with Alexander Jackson. They never saw anything unusual about the family and didn't see or hear anything unusual the day of the shootings. The 911 call Jackson made also was played for the jury. He cries and grunts during the call. He doesn't describe the intruder except to say it's a black man with dark clothing. Cedar Rapids police canine officer Kurt Buckles, one of the first officers on the scene, testified Friday and video from his body camera was played for the jury. It showed officers when they first entered the house. Buckles canine dog, Corsa, was used to search around the house and area to see if she could pick up the intruder's track, but she didn't alert in the area. Tyler Johnston, another of Jackson's lawyers, grilled Buckles on his search and tracking and attempted to discredit him and Corsa. He said the dog seemed to be struggling in the heat and said Buckles didn't spend enough time on the search. Next on the front page, this story titled Odyssey of Disappearance Ends with Hunter's Discovery. This is from Emily Anderson of the Gazette. Dateline Cedar Rapids. It had been over seven months since Eric Spaw's city truck, was found submerged in the Cedar River when hunters found his body some 11 miles downstream. Spa worked for the Cedar Rapids Water Division and loved racing, snowmobiling, and water biking. Now, all these months later, his family is relieved his body was found in December, but agonized by his death. Johnny Spaw, his older brother, said, I'm glad he was found, because you drive over the river and you just wonder where he's at. Now we know where he's at. At least we got that part. We're not wondering where he's at, so it does help a lot, but it's still hard. End quote. The six hunters who found Spa's body said that while they are shaken by the experience, they're grateful to provide some certainty to the family. Trenton Attis, age 30 of Marion, said of finding Spa's remains on December 30th, It's just something that's completely changed my life because this family looked for seven months, and after knowing that we provided that closure to them, and seeing them now grieve again. First you grieve the loss, then you grieve the unknown, and now you grieve the death. It's something I never want my family members to ever go through while I'm on the water, he said. The six men were hunting along the river when they discovered the body on the river bank. The remains were later confirmed by authorities to be those of Spa, who was missing since May seventh of 2022. Spa's work truck was found submerged in the Cedar River just upstream of the Edgewood Road bridge, leading to an extended search of the river for his body. His mother told the Gazette her son, who was fifty four, had diabetes and had been having trouble regulating his insulin intake, so she believed he may have passed out from low blood sugar and driven into the river. Tyler Dvorak, aged thirty of Marion, who's in the U.S. Army and works at the Army Recruiting Office in Cedar Rapids, was the hunter who first noticed a pair of boots on the riverbank. It sparked my curiosity. In the army, we're trained for attention to detail. Know what's in your surroundings. So I was like, "Okay, this is foreign. Let me go check it out." He said. Dvorjak called his father, friends over who were all in the army or army veterans to confirm the discovery, and then called 911. Chris Ainsworth, aged 35, of Cedar Rapids, met police at a nearby railroad track and directed them to the body. We heard the police say Red Wing Boots on the radio, and then, yeah, Red Wing Boots, and then, it's probably him, Dvorak said. The friends said they'd seen posters about Spa's disappearance that his family put up along the Cedar River. They regularly would remind each other to keep an eye out when they were hunting or fishing near the river, Addis said. Several of Spa's family members have reached out to the group, Ainsworth said, and they plan to set up a time to meet in person. Spa went missing after working a night shift at the Northwest Water Treatment Plant and never returning to the J Avenue Water Treatment Plant, where his personal car was parked. Cedar Rapids search and rescue team spent several days searching the river where his city truck was found near the Edgewood Bridge Road. Spa's family also hired a professional search team from Minnesota to canvass the area. Finding Spa's body, the hunters said, has increased the respect they have for the potential dangers of being on and near the water. Addis said, we've hunted our whole lives, but since that day, we wear our life jackets on the boat now. I know it sounds crazy. It's stupid that we never did, End quote. Johnny Spaw, aged 60, of Cedar Rapids, said he's grateful to the hunters for finding his brother's body and glad to have a clearer answer about what happened, saying, It's never going to be over. It's something that will be with all of us forever, but it helps. He owns a welding and metal fabrication shop called Johnny Spa Race Cars. He has a picture of his brother hanging in the shop that he talks to some nights as he's leaving. It's a picture of Eric in a race car after he won a race at Hawkeye Downs in the early 1990s eric and his brothers all used to race cars and motorcycles and eric also really enjoyed snowmobiling and riding his personal watercraft johnny spa said he also said it's ironic that he died on that river because he spent a lot of time there especially right down where the accident was he did a lot of jet skiing he actually competed they had some deal late in the summer down there some drag racing so he would actually take his jet ski and race against guys in boats Eric was planning to throw away the Hawkeye Downs picture a few years ago, but his brother saved it and hung it in his shop when his brother went missing. Before the accident, some people didn't know him, and it kind of helps people see who he was and what he used to do when he raced. When I would leave at night, I would just tell him goodnight and say, you just need to come home. We need to find you. I just kept saying, where are you? Turns out he already was home. Where he was found at is about as close to the neighborhood that we grew up in as he could get. And the story is accompanied by that picture that we were just discussing, and also by a picture of the uh, three three of the six hunters, uh, the Tyler Zorjak, Trenton Addis, and Chris Ainsworth. Next on the front page from Marissa Payne, a story titled Westdale Developers Aiming to Finish Site in Five Years. As the former Westdale Mall continues its transformation into a mix of shops, housing, dining, offices, and hotels, the developer says what's taken shape in the 10 years since the overhaul began isn't exactly what was originally envisioned. But amid major disruptions, the site has grown in value and seen positive growth since its redevelopment was first envisioned in 2013. Said Todd Nelson, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of Fru Development Group, and only a couple of years likely remain until the mall's makeover is complete. The $90 million transformation of the 1979 built mall, supported with city tax incentives, has taken shape amid a retail apocalypse. Disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic have exacerbated the global trend of plummeting sales at brick-and-mortar retail stores that has prompted closure of many shops, and amid the height of the pandemic in Iowa, the 2020 Duratio struck. Nelson said, we've done those things in terms of creating value and creating density that we wanted to do, and in fact are slightly ahead of pace. We have a lot of good things happening here. In the pipeline, Nelson said, are 14 buildings in the next two to three years. Home 2 Suites by Hilton, an extended stay hotel, is under construction and slated to be done in July. That will be the second Westdale Hotel, in addition to True by Hilton, on Westdale Parkway Southwest. Crews began to move dirt this week to make way for a Boulder tap House, the second in Cedar Rapids, in addition to the one at Lindale Mall. Two buildings are being completed along Edgewood Road Southwest, including the new Take Five oil change. Work also is planned to start this year on a $34 million housing complex of four different build rental units, a mix of one, two, and three bedrooms. Just four lots remain left to fill, Nelson said. He declined to say specifically what types of uses are being pursued there, but said it could be retail, office, restaurants, housing, or hotel rooms. He said, we're really looking to finish this thing out and get these last spaces filled here, so we're kind of in deal-making mode. Nelson estimated the whole Westdale redevelopment will be complete within the next two to five years. Its completion depends on what offers come in, he said, adding that rising interest rates and a slowdown in the economy may put pressure on development. Since 2013, Nelson said fewer retailers, especially big-box retailers, are expanding brick-and-mortar locations. So, as Westdale's transformation has taken shape, developers have adjusted to scale up elements such as housing, with retail options being limited. Nelson said he's eager to see Westdale's assessed value continue to go north from where it started in 2013 at $4.3 million. By 2024, he said it should be in excess of $75 million. Cedar Rapids City Council member Scott Olson, a real estate broker, said he recognizes there's some sentiment in the community – Lamenting the loss of the former enclosed Westdale Mall, but developments with entertainment complexes and a variety of new businesses are the new reality. Olson said he will recuse himself from future votes on the council pertaining to Westdale's redevelopment as he is working with the FRU team to help recruit retailers. Although Westdale continues to morph into something new, he said its taxable value exceeds that of Lyndale Malls in the northeast quadrant, largely due to the variety of uses at the Westdale site. He pointed to the changing nature of amenities in the urban core, with pickleball and a big grove brewery taking shape, at the eighty one point five million dollar mixed use development coming along at the long vacant corner of First Avenue West and First Street Southwest. No one could have envisioned that when crafting long-term development plans, Olson said, and Westdale's redevelopment is just another transformation that couldn't have been predicted. Finally, Olson said, we're seeing the ups and downs of Westdale Mall and the ups and downs of Lindale Mall are just a reflection of what's happening nationwide and the shopping habits and types of services people want to get. The Gazette is not short on crime stories today. Here is another one, this one from the Iowa Today section, by Emily Anderson of the Gazette, titled Woman Charged with Attempted Murder After Attack on Officer at Jail, Dateline West Union. A woman was charged with attempted murder after she attacked a detention officer in the Fayette County Jail in West Union on Monday, according to a news release from Fayette County. Jeannie Marie Murphy, age 48, is also charged with assault on persons in certain occupations, a felony, and fifth-degree criminal mischief and misdemeanor. She was in the jail after being arrested January 4th on a charge of domestic abuse. That day, police were called to an address in Olwine for a report of domestic abuse. A man told police he'd been sleeping on the couch and woke to Murphy staring at him, wearing plastic gloves and carrying a bottle. She reportedly threw a liquid on him that she told him was acid. She told police she made the liquid out of salt, water, beef broth, molasses, and other ingredients, and that she genuinely believed it was acid and would cause burning, according to a criminal complaint. The complaint didn't state what the relationship was between Murphy and the man, but it did list them as living at the same address in Old Wine, The criminal complaints against Murphy for the attack on the correctional officer listed a different address for her in Cedar Rapids. That attack happened in the jail after Murphy damaged the sprinkler system in her cell, according to a criminal complaint. The correctional officer was attempting to move her to a different cell in order to check the sprinkler system, but Murphy refused to move and attacked the officer. She reportedly knocked the officer over and hit the officer multiple times in the head with her fists and with the officer's body camera causing a lump to form on the officer's head. The officer was later found to have a concussion. The officer managed to use a stun gun on Murphy but Murphy continued to attack and took the handcuffs off the officer's belt. A sheriff's deputy was called and was able to help control Murphy and force her into a jail cell. Murphy had her first court appearance on the attempted murder charge Tuesday. She is now being held in the jail on a $25,000 cash or surety bond in addition to the $2,000 cash bond she already had for the domestic abuse charge. And I think this is the last court-related or criminal story. This is also from Emily Anderson, Dateline Cedar Rapids, titled Cedar Rapids Officials Say Investigation of Fatal Stabbing is a Priority. Law enforcement officials sought Friday to tell the public they are moving forward with investigating the fable's fatal stabbing of Devonna Walker after social justice advocates this week complained authorities are not being transparent in the death of the black mother of three. Walker, aged 29, was stabbed on January 3 outside an apartment complex in the 2100 block of North T- Town Court Northeast. Two people were detained and interviewed by police but released later that day. Local activist organizations held a protest Wednesday, urging the police department and the county attorney's office to make an arrest and to keep the public and Walker's family informed. In public statements Friday, the Cedar Rapids Police Department, Lynn County Attorney's Office, and Cedar Rapids Mayor all said the case is getting their attention. Police said they have completed their investigation and turned it over to the Lynn County Attorney's Office to consider charges. Later, the Lynn County Attorney's Office issued its own statement, saying it would provide an update to Walker's family. The prosecutor's statement reads, There is a lot of information to consider and evaluate, and we will make it a top priority. However, as in many cases, we may need to follow up with the police department to discuss the case further so we can make the appropriate decision based on the evidence and nothing else, end quote. The statement notes there are many legal factors that go into arrests and prosecutions, and filing charges can take days, weeks, or even months. Walker's autopsy results, which could include key information, have not yet been finalized, the statement said, and continued, we recognize there is pain in the community over the loss of Devana Walker. We share in lamenting the unnecessary loss of life to violence and remain committed to justice in this case. We are asking that anyone who is feeling this pain and who is feeling anger to find support in resources available in the community and among community members, but not to take members matters into their own hands end quote. Cedar Rapids Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell also put out a statement expressing sympathy to the family and friends of Walker, saying violence and hate have no place in our community. I understand the frustration while we wait for the results of the investigation. In order to ensure a just outcome, we must respect the legal process. It will require patience and calm. While we wait, let's remember there is a family left behind. Let us unite to make sure they receive the care and support they need, end quote. We do not have a local editorial today or an editorial column, but we do have a guest column from Norman Sherman. Uh, Norman Sherman of Coralville has worked extensively in politics, including as Vice President Hubert Humphrey's press secretary. Uh, Mr. Sherman writes a uh, column titled, A Voucher Here, A School Gone There, and says, Free public education is as American as the Star-Spangled Banner. Using public dollars for private education is not. About 25 years after the anthem was first sung, Horace Mann, a member of Congress, defined what public education in a democracy is. He issued no manifesto, he sang no song, but it is clear what he had in mind. Education free to the students, as local as possible, non-sectarian, publicly financed, available to everyone. School choice has been with us since then as the reality, not as a slogan. Parents could use free public education or choose to pay for private education, usually religious. It had been the choice since the early 1600s. What we didn't have was publicly financed private schooling. Governor Kim Reynolds is no man. I can vouch for that. Her commitment seems not to the public good in education, but to private gain. My tax dollars and yours go through the government we vote for to a public system designed for all our kids. Poor kids don't naturally go to private schools, and no one, rich or poor, should go on my money. If anyone wants a child to go to a parochial school, they already have that option, a private school. If I have the money, is also a choice I can make. I don't pass the hat in the neighborhood. I choose private. I pay. So should everyone else in Iowa. Reynolds and most of her conservative allies performed a miracle, making our currency into pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, dollars, and vouchers. Those vouchers are a special device that makes it possible to use my taxes and yours to support private and parochial schools I have no interest in and may very possibly dislike. I am not alone in the hope that those dollars seek to create excellence for the 90% of our kids who are in public school, not the 10% who are not. Public schools are often understaffed and teachers overworked and paid too little. But that is often true of private schools as well. The pupil-teacher ratio is close. Public schools are about 14 to 1, private 11 to 1, hardly enough to make a difference in quality. School choice for some means no choice for others. Rural schools will, quote, consolidate, a slick slogan for longer trips for kindergartners. It means small towns suffer economically. An empty school employs no people. Parents who came out of the fields tired at the end of a long day, but used to attend local school board meetings, are now forced to, to travel 50 miles they won't have the energy to take. Parents, students, economy all suffer. School staff are an important part of a town's economy. The unemployed don't have much to spend at the local grocery, hardware store, gas station, or even church. "'Governor, to use some of my tax dollars to send one child to a school that says Roe v. Wade was appropriately overturned and that abortion is a sin makes me complicit in something I abhor.'" That should not be your rights or the state's. I may withhold $10 from my income tax payment. It won't stop the vouchers, but it will certainly make me feel that I stood up for what I believe. And again, this column was to us from Norman Sherman of Coralville, who has worked extensively in politics, including as Vice President Hubert Humphrey's press secretary. And as it turns out, the one community letter that's printed in the Gazette today has to do with that same topic, and it comes to us from Bob Gertson of Oxford Junction. Mr. Gertson says, No taxation without representation is one of the major principles that our country was founded on. Unfortunately, this year again, we are saddled with Governor Kim Reynolds' misguided proposal to fund a private school voucher program that will have no public oversight. I can run to serve on my public school board, city council, or as a county supervisor. I can show up at public meetings that are held by these groups to offer my opinion, or I can contact my representatives by phone, email, or written correspondence. And we, as citizens, have the power to vote them in or out. This is taxation with representation. On the other hand, private schools make decisions behind closed doors. I do not have the right to attend their school board meetings or offer any opinion about how our public tax dollars would be used. If the governor's voucher scheme passes, a large amount of this money will be funneled into a religious system that has tolerated the sexual abuse of children by its church leaders for decades, if not centuries. This is taxation without representation. Iowa taxpayers already spend tens of millions of dollars every year on non-public education. This money is taken directly out of the education budget and reduces the amount available for our public schools. Public money belongs in public schools. It's as simple as that. Mr. Gertzen says contact your legislator and tell them that this un-American voucher program should be shown the door and you can find your uh, legislators contact information at legis.iowa.gov/legislators/find again that's legis l e g i s .iowa.gov/legislators/find I want to take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, January 14th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries, starting first with the short notices and then moving into the longer ones. We will start with Charles E. Maness, M-A-N-E-S-S of Arlington, who died yesterday. He was age 71. Arrangements are being made through Jameson Schmidt's Funeral Home. In Cedar Rapids, Lois Hines, H-E-I-N-S, age 86, died Wednesday, January 11th. Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City is in charge of those arrangements. In Iowa City, Myrta Jane Viner Harding, age 87, formerly of West Liberty, died Thursday, January 12th. The family is being assisted by Henderson Barker Funeral Home in West Liberty. And finally, uh, Rick Bentrott, age 68, who uh, was from Loudoun and died Friday, yesterday. Chapman Funeral Home in Clarence is in charge of those arrangements. Next is Lily May Wilson age 67, of Cedar Rapids, who passed away on January 10th. In accordance with her wishes, cremation rights were accorded, and Iowa cremation is assisting the family. That is uh, all the information about the, the service that uh, I can provide to you. Next, from Cedar Rapids, Robert J. O'Brien, age 77, passed away at the West Ridge Care Center in Cedar Rapids on Wednesday, January 11th. A memorial visitation will be held at the Cedar Memorial Chapel State Room on Monday, January 16th from 5 to 7 p.m. And then a memorial mass will be held Tuesday, January 17th at 10 a.m. at St. Jude Catholic Church. The family asks that in lieu of flowers, do something nice for a stranger, and wishes to thank the entire staff at the Westridge Care Center for the love and support they showed Robert while he was in their care. Next, it's a notice for Linford Donald Kenyon, age 95, of Colesburg, who passed away Thursday, January 12th, at the Hawkeye Care Center in Asbury. A visitation will be held 9 to 11 a.m. this Monday, January 16th at the Colesburg United Methodist Church in Colesburg, and then the funeral will be held Monday, January 16th at 11 a.m. at the Colesburg Methodist Church. Next, we have Marilyn A. Wallace, age 81, of Cedar Rapids, who passed away Tuesday, January 10th. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Uh, tomorrow, January 15th, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, with a service at 9 a.m. A funeral at 9 a.m. Monday, January 16th, at the funeral home. And there's a very brief notice here among the longer ones, and it just is. For, this one is for Francis. Baumler, B-A-H-M-L-E-R, age 89, of rural Iowa City, who died at his home under hospice care on Tuesday, January 10th. The notice reads, no public services are planned. To share a thought, memory, or condolence, please visit Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website at gayandchia.com. Next We have Joyce Cecilia Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N, age 87, of Cedar Rapids, who died Monday, January 2nd, at her home following what's described as a lengthy battle with Alzheimer's. She was surrounded by family, and a private graveside service has taken place. The family issues a special thank you to the nurses, social workers, and chaplains from Mercy Hospice. They say their support was very much appreciated, and in lieu of flowers, the family requests that donations be made to Mercy Hospice of Cedar Rapids. Next, we have the obituary for Dan Ward, age 62, of Monty, who died Thursday, January 12th, at the Regional Medical Center in Manchester. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. this coming Tuesday, January 17th at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Monty with visitation the preceding Monday, next Monday, 4 to 8 p.m., and then again from 9 to 10 a.m. Tuesday at the Monty Community Center uh, on Washington Avenue in Coggin. Next is um, Master Sergeant Dominique Renou blanc uh, Master Sergeant of the U.S. Air Force, retired it says that she passed away on january 3rd she was 57 years old she had originally been born in tucson uh, arizona it's quite a lengthy obituary so i'm trying to pull out the key points here it says that there will be a celebration of her life On Saturday, January 21st at the Celebration Farm in Iowa City from 1 to 4 p.m. with recollections and military honors starting at 2 p.m. I guess one thing, she was a uh, certified substitute teacher and also was a valued member of the Cedar Rapids City Planning Commission who was always on the side of green spaces and support of neighborhoods. Next, we have the obituary for Ralph Bauman, B-A-U-G-H-M-A-N, age 98, of Iowa City, who died on January 11th. Private family services will be held, and a public celebration of Ralph's life will be held at a later date. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to St. Wenceslaus Catholic Church in Iowa City. Continuing, we have Donald Fred Franzenberg, age 83, who died Thursday, January 12th at the Keystone Nursing Care Center in Keystone. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday at the Phillips Funeral Home in Keystone, and then the funeral will be at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, January 17th at St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone. The family has published a thank you to Pastor David Lingard, the staff at the Keystone Care Center, and Hospice of Compassus for dedicated care of Don's body and soul in the last weeks of his life. Next, we have Gerald Solomons, who was just about to turn 102. He was uh, a mere 101 in about 50 weeks. He was a pediatrician and had been in a faculty position at Brown University when he was recruited to come to University of Iowa Medical School and oversaw the University of Iowa Child Development Clinic from 1962 to 1984. No services are planned at this time. In lieu of flowers, gifts may be made to the Oak Knoll Foundation or Iowa City Hospice, and the family says they encourage all who wish to remember him to indulge in a Cadbury fruit and nut bar. We have two more obituaries. We have quite a few today. One is for Kermis, Earl Shetler, also known as Kerm, age 78 of Sigourney, who died Thursday, January 12th, at the Keokuk County Health Center in Sigourney. Visitation will be tomorrow, January the 15th, from 3 to 6 p.m. at the church called Be the Light Ministry. And then burial, a funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Monday, January 16th at the church with and burial with military rights at the East Cemetery in Sigourney. Regarding prep sports, which is our focus here at IRIS, uh, we only have one full story in the Gazette today, and that is a high school wrestling story. And then I can read to you some scores, courtesy of my very kind husband, Kelly Neff. And we have one other little tidbit we can read. So we have high school wrestling from K.J. Pilcher, titled Pirates Defeat Lions, Links for Tri-Rivers Sweep. The Dateline Lisbon. Albernette has made strides over the last four years. Pirates coach Clayton Rush recognized his wrestlers' enjoyment and eagerness to learn the intricacies of the sport. They devoted themselves to improving in certain areas and working on specific drills. Now the Pirates are reaping the rewards. Rush said, They work hard. They are coachable. Our practice time is extremely meaningful and purposeful. It's just a good group of kids." It's fun right now. Class 1A second-ranked Alburnett claimed notable victories Thursday, sweeping number 3 Lisbon and North Lynn in a Tri-Rivers Conference triangular during Military Appreciation Night at Lisbon High School. The Pirates posted identical fifty to twenty four wins over the Lions and Lynx. Lisbon beat North Lynn fifty four to twenty six Rush said, "I like where we're at. We just put fifty points on a Lisbon team that is no slouch. It's been a while since we've beat them, so that feels kind of good." End quote. The Pirates improved to twenty one and three overall this season, winning nine weights against the Lions, whose record is twelve and eight. Al Burnett recorded five pins, opening with two straight falls from Carson Klosterman at 152 pounds and Shaden Washburn at 160. J.J. Callahan at 126 and Dawson Becker at 132 added two late pins for a 45-21 lead to seal the dual victory with two matches remaining. Atlee DeWitt added a pin at 106. Alburnett won nine matches with pins from Carson and Reese Klosterman and heavyweight Josiah Riedel and a technical fall from Callahan in the win over the Lynx. Carson Klosterman, a two-time state qualifier who placed third a year ago, notched two pins and is 32-1 and this season. Rush said Carson is fun to watch. He's dominant right now. Lisbon coach Brad Smith earned his 699th career dual win against North Lynn. Before I read those scores, there is a little tiny tidbit on one of the sidebars on the front page of the sports section, and it says ex Xavier Starr signs for $2.4 million, and it's under the category Iowans in the MLB. Former Cedar Rapids Xavier Prep Mitch Keller agreed to a one-year $2.4375 million contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates on Friday. Keller, who was 5-12 with a 3.91 ERA and 1.40 WHIP with 138 strikeouts last season, was eligible for arbitration. Moving to those scores, we have some bowling scores in girls bowling. Cedar Rapids Kennedy beat Linmar twenty-eight oh one to twenty-six twenty-two, and in boys bowling, Linmar beat Cedar Rapids Kennedy thirty-one hundred to three thousand seventy-eight. We have some girls basketball scores as well. Benton 48, vinton Shelsburg 45. It was Solon in a close one also under uh, over West Delaware 47 to 46. Not so close, Cascade 50, Animosa 14, Durant 54, West Branch 46. Mid-Prairie took on and beat Tipton 76 to 43. North Lynn beat Springville 59 to 44 and it was Lone Tree over Highland 51 to 38. Well moving on to something completely different if you or someone you know is looking for love we have an article here that might help. This is from Elijah Decius of the Gazette and it's under a big title that says Finding Love. And it's got a subtitle that says, Cat Cantrill of Cedar Rapids finds her niche playing matchmaker for others. And this is from the living section. Before she became a matchmaker, there were times Cat Cantrill didn't believe in love. Thirteen years after marrying her husband at age 22, the Arizona native found herself divorced and alone in Iowa with two children and few acquaintances. Two failed relationships and myriad miserable dates followed that abusive relationship and nasty divorce. Ultimately, she found her way to Brian, her fiancé and partner of eight years. During that time, she coached women at her Vitality Fitness and Dance studio in Cedar Rapids, where the pleas from her clients grew louder with the isolation of the pandemic. The women she mentored holistically in dance and life wanted help finding their Brian, too. That's when she realized she had the ability to help people find love. Cantrill said, I can bring the best out of people. And not only that, but I can see the good in everyone. Why am I not using my talents to connect people in real life? So, when her studio closed in January 2022 due to the pandemic, she opened the Heart Agency. Now, one year old, the Heart Agency in Cedar Rapids is more than a date coordinator. For this dating coach, matchmaking isn't simply a game of romantic trigonometry. It's about helping matches gravitate toward each other naturally. As a love doula, Cantrill says much of her work focuses not just on potential matches, but helping clients harness the best of what they already have. Within themselves, they bring it out themselves. I just give them the tools they need to do it, she said. Her services range from $350 to $4,500, depending on how much involvement a client wants. On the low end of pricing, she offers three months of sessions that help clients date more successfully on their own. On the high end, she offers full service for busy individuals looking for love. Clients go through her blueprint, take personality tests, undergo background checks, and go through a rigorous evaluation before being set up on dates. Cantrill said before dates, candidates are shown profiles of their match without a photo, a departure from the world of online dating where vanity metrics dominate. For free, singles can join quote the library on the Heart Agency's website, where Cantrill has amassed profiles for more than 600 single people in the area. When working with clients, Cantrell says she often first must reassure chronically single clients that there's nothing wrong or broken about them that has left them single. Second, she helps them realize they are deserving of love. For discouraged and frustrated daters, that is often a tearful realization. Some of the initial steps in Cantrell's process help clients identify their personal traits and resets sometimes arbitrary expectations that have been set for their dating preferences by themselves and others like friends or parents. She also helps people identify their inner saboteurs, personal blocks, that may have interfered with their ability to find long-term relationships in the past and recalibrate their dating habits with practical advice. For example, the idea of chemistry, or quote, the spark, is mostly a matter of anxiety and brain chemistry, she said, not necessarily an indicator of whether a suitor is the one. You don't need to wait three days after the first date to call back either. She said, sometimes the matchmaking piece isn't necessarily bringing two people together. Sometimes the matchmaking piece is the disconnect you have with yourself and it's rematching within yourself. Sometimes that's all it takes. But finding the right match for long-term relationships is best done from a position of strength. To increase success in finding the right soulmate, she teaches singles to create romance in their own lives first. Cantrell said, The happier you are in your life, the happier the types of people you're going to be attracting. I help people be people again. End quote. Getting out of online dating that has become so prevalent for singles today and helping people develop their own interests, hobbies, and joys is a great first step to do that, Cantrell says. For divorcees who married young and devoted their focus to raising a family, it's a vital step, she says. It's something Cantrell, now age 48, realized she was missing when she started dating again after her divorce. Before finding Brian, rekindling her passion with dance helped her emanate the energy she needed to find the right match for love. I don't want to just be a part of someone else's life. I deserve to have my own, the entrepreneur said. Sometimes what we're seeking in a partnership is what we're lacking in ourselves. Cantrell is certified through the Global Love Institute and is a member of the Matchmakers Alliance. But most of her training for the job came through her dance studio, where friends pushed her to realize how many long-term relationships and marriages she was responsible for making. She said, I was a matchmaker in that studio. I created a space for people to come together, to have relationships with each other. But online dating sites can remain an important tool in matchmaking if they're used carefully. Rethinking the types of people one is drawn to and why is a big part of using the apps correctly. And Trill says sometimes successful dating means giving a second look to profiles you might never think to, quote, swipe right on saying if you find yourself in a cycle of poor dates, it's not that there's all these bad people, it's just you've trained the algorithm to deliver these types of people to you. Cantrell said people are intrigued when they find out she is a matchmaker, but her new career also faces a stigma as outdated and unnecessary. Clients can also be seen as desperate, but Cantrill likens the heart agency's work to other professional resources commonly used in other areas of our lives, saying we hire realtors to find the right house, financial advisors to manage finances, but when it comes to love, you're just supposed to know how to find a great match for you. Saturday's Gazette always has the TV section. And so there is a a story here about a show that perhaps you watched in the past and is coming back in a, quote, reboot called Night Court. And this story is titled Night Court is Back in Session. Though she was a major fan of Night Court in her youth, Little did Melissa Rauch know what a big role she would play in bringing it back. The Big Bang Theory alum is a star and, with her husband Winston, an executive producer of the sitcom that returns to NBC in a revival, premiering this Tuesday, January 17th. Rouch plays Abby Stone, who follows the path of her father Harry, the late Harry Anderson's character, as the judge in a nighttime New York courtroom. A very significant returnee is John Larroquette as prosecutor-turned-defense attorney Dan Fielding, the part for which the actor won four consecutive Primetime Emmy Awards. I was excited about producing Night Court and really thought I would just be behind the camera on it, the lively Rouch said. Then, as we were developing it, and once John came on board and the scripts came together, I thought, I'd be a dummy not to play this role. I feel grateful that I ended up making that decision. I know I would have been kicking myself." End quote. The chance to act opposite Larroquette was a huge incentive for Raj to appear in Night Court, too. It's a true dream come true to be working with him, she states. Watching how he brilliantly executes every line that's given to him, he's never not wonderful. He's a master class in acting. Rouch has a mutual admirer in Lara Kett, who passed on returning to night court until she decided to act in it. He explains that mirrors Dan Fielding's return to court. He's not a part of that system any longer, so he would not have even approached the idea, except that this woman is Judge Harry Stone's daughter. He finds that touching, and he decides that he can't leave her alone in that place at three in the morning, so she's going to need backup, and he decides to join her reluctantly. Among other new night court regulars, the single-named LaCretta succeeds Richard Maul's Bull as the court bailiff, with India de Beaufort as an assistant district attorney and Kapil Iwakar as the court clerk. While aiming to generate something fresh, Rauch also wants to pay sufficient homage to the original night court. So does Larroquette, who admits to thinking often of such late former co-stars as Anderson, Marky Post, and Charles Robinson while making the update. He recalls it being very emotional the first week we did this because I would see them sitting at the table. Larroquette notes that he suggested the rehirings of the original script supervisor so I could look at them occasionally and go, Do you remember when? Well, if you remember Night Court, you may want to check that out. Here are a few other things to check out if you're looking for something to do today. Uh, There is a Monster Truck War event. See these giant superstars compete in nonstop action. The show will feature Outlaw, Shark Attack, Reptoid, and Sheriff competing in earth-shaking, ground-pounding, high-flying excitement. My goodness. It's from 1 to 3 p.m., so you still have time to get there at Alliant Energy Powerhouse in Cedar Rapids. That cost is $10 to $30. Also, let's see, there is the Rush Tribute Project, an homage to one of the most enduring and influential bands in rock music, the Rush Tribute Project, known as RTP, to its dedicated fan base, delivers the magic of Rush's famous live concerts, and there will be one of those tonight at 7.30 p.m. at the Englert Theater. The cost is free, so 7.30 tonight at the Englert Theater. If you are or were a fan of Rush, you can see that tribute show. Then, Tonight at 8 p.m., the All-Iowa Comedy Showcase. See some of Iowa's brightest comedians, Mike Lucas, Justin Bulver, Matt Weiss, Jen Kuehl, Zach Vaughn, and Brandon Gale will all be performing at the Lucky Cat Comedy and Events uh, 301 Second Avenue Southwest in Cedar Rapids. The cost is $15 in advance and $20 at the door. We have time for one more brief article. We'll go back to sports for just a second. This is about Iowa football ticket drop in prices for 2023. You don't hear that often. Iowa Athletics has cut the price of football tickets by $10 to $25, depending on seat location ahead of the 2023 season. General season ticket prices, which ranged from $345 to $450 in 2022, will now range from $335 to $425 in 2023. Athletics director Gary Bardis said in the news release, while it seems like the cost of everything else is increasing, we wanted to not only hold our prices steady, but reduce them slightly to recognize the support of the greatest fans in America. The price cuts occur as Iowa comes off an 8-5 season and faces a 2023 schedule that does not have as many marquee games as in 2022. John Stepp provided that article. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, January 14th. I'm your reader, Mary Neff. It's been my pleasure to read with you today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.